Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present part three of Karen Selk's lecture, Reel and Weave, The Silk Spinner's Story. The lecture was recorded live as part of the 2007 Maywa Textile Symposium. In part three, the final episode, Karen describes her visits to India and the double silk ECAT produced by the Selvi community. She also introduces the tawny golden silk made by the huge Tussamoth. Karen Selk has been a textile designer and artist since 1972. Her primary focus has been weaving and fusing felt with silk. In addition to writing, photography, research, and textile arts, Karen runs Trinway Silks from her Salt Spring Island home. Now, India is, um, <clears throat> many of you have heard Charlotte talk about India, I'm sure. It is an absolutely amazing country to me. It is so diverse, and to think that it's well over 50 years now that India's been able to remain a democracy is a miracle. Each state has its own language. English is the language of the government because the Brits were there for so long. The majority of people speak Hindi, but not all of them do. It's a religious uh, language. Um, And then there's the caste system. I mean, it goes on and on with all the diverse stuff that happens in this country. Um, They're really people to be admired. Now, we're going to um, visit uh, mostly silkworms while we're here, and I don't know if I can reach, but I'm going to walk over to the map and show you where we're going to be visiting. The uh, northeast section of India, over here on the other side of Bangladesh, you can see Bangladesh, the um, fuchsia-colored state is called Assam. And Assam is where the Brits planted um, all the tea. But the Brahmaputra River, which comes out of the Himalayas, flows through Assam and then enters into the Bay of Bengal. Now, all the flooding that we had in Assam and that whole area earlier this year is because of the Brahmaputra. Whenever we hear of uh, flooding in that area, it's because it's that big uh, major river. But it creates an ecosystem that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, and so we have silkworms and silk that is very special that comes from there. Then we're going to Orissa State. It just happens to be another fuchsia-colored state on the Bay of Bengal there. We're going to visit uh, the Tussa caterpillar there. And then uh, way over here on the west, there's a green state called Gujarat. We're going to look at um, an amazing... <laughs> we're going to look at an amazing family who does double e-cat uh, weaving there. India is goes from the mountains to the desert. It's just, it's a huge country and very diverse and extremely colorful. I think it's the most colorful place I've ever been. (laughs) India is fast moving forward um, in the uh, economic world as well, but it will never, uh, it'll never move as fast as China, at least in the countryside. The cities are different. India happens on the street. We live behind closed doors. People brush their teeth on the streets. They're playing cards on the streets. They do dentistry on the street. They cut each other's hair on the street. Uh, you walk down the street and there's a blanket with dentures sitting on it. it everything happens out in the open. 
Now we're going to look at, um, uh, we're go- we keep looking at silk in all the different stages. So this is how little they are when you can see the eggs. The eggs are the little round black spot, and the tiny little long things are the baby caterpillars when they're first born. So they're very, very uh, small. And it's that constant feeding of mulberry leaves. Now, when they're so small like that, they can't chew into the hard edge of the mulberry leaf. So um, the people that are raising them have machetes, and they chop up the mulberry leaves so that it's easier for the little babies to get the succulent juices from the mulberry leaves. Uh, These chandrikas are what they provide for their silkworms to do their spinning. And they just sit like easels along the roadside in the areas where uh, they raise the silkworms. Like I said, nothing is done behind closed doors. It's all out in the open. And then a few villages away, they make these chandrikas. That's a whole village project in itself. The spiral thing on the inside is a reed that they do a three-strand braid, just like you braid your hair, and they get a great big long braid of that. And then in order to make these, they then weave a flat mat that it's on, and they've got a big honking needle like this uh, that they have, again, some reed in. And one man sits at the back and one at the front. And the guy at the front keeps spiraling, spiraling the braid around and poking the needle to the back. And the guy pulls it through and then pokes it back to the front. And so it's uh, a whole village um, project just making the chandrikas for the, for the silk um, rearers. And there's the silk coming out of the silkworm spinneret. And here's a guy looking for his own little spot in his uh, condo or his chandrika. And when the moths break out, this is what the moths look like. You can see how big they are. They're not really big, at least these white guys. But when we visit the uh, wild ones, they're much larger. Now, the caterpillars uh, that make the white silk are called Bombex mori. That's their uh, Latin name. And I'm telling you that just because we're going to visit some other ones. So you can see them mating. The female is uh, much larger because she's born with all the eggs in her body, and the male um, fertilizes the eggs inside of her body. Now, in this stage, their sole purpose is to mate lay eggs, and then they die. They have no eating apparatus. They have no digestive system. Their whole body is filled with reproductive organs and nothing else. They live for a very short time, five to seven days, until they've mated and laid their eggs, and that's it in in that particular stage. Now, in the mid-1800s, Silkworm disease hit in Asia, and uh, it also hit in Europe. Europe had a sericulture industry as well. That's what you call raising silkworms, sericulture. And they put Louis Pasteur on the problem, and he realized that he could tell which mother moths had disease. Uh, Within India, they have a ministry of textiles. Imagine us having a ministry of textiles. Wouldn't that be fabulous? Within the Ministry of Textiles, there's the Weaver Service Center, and they help weavers with designs and better dyeing and better weaving techniques. And then there's the Central Silk Board, and these are the fellows that have helped me a lot when I go to research um, about the silk. 
And the central silk board helps the farmers. Uh, So when the mother moth is ready to lay her eggs, they put her in one of these little cones, um, and she lays her eggs. And then uh, the scientists check her body, and if she's got disease, they can cut out the eggs from female number five and burn them, and they cut way down on the disease. Because once it hits a colony, the whole colony is wiped out within about a day and a half. It's not just part of them, it's, it's all of them. And there's more females than males, and the female lays between 300 and 500 eggs. So what they do with the males is they give the male a chance with his female. Uh, he gets to have his first female for an hour, and then they l- separate them by hand, and they put him in the fridge because he can be used again once he gets cooled down. <laughs> And after he's cooled down, they give him to his second female. He gets to be with her for up to two hours, and they separate him by hand. They get to use him for three goes. The men in here probably think, oh, my, the life, the life of a silk moth. So this is the beginning of the cycle all over again. And then there's things in life, you know, that you just sort of don't think about until one day it hits you and you go, oh, my gosh, I never... I never really thought of how we got from A to B. Well, this was one of those moments for me. You you know about the the cocoon, and you know about the silk, and it's, oh, yeah, how do the farmers get it to where it needs to go? Well, there's a couple of huge um, silk markets in India, and this one is near Bangalore, and 365 days a year it operates. The farmers bring in their cocoons, And they set their cocoons out so that the buyers, the people that are reeling the silk, can look at the quality. So they feel the cocoons, they go by weight, they take them and they roll it. They did all this for me. I had to take a cocoon and roll it next to my ear and pretend I knew what they were talking about. I didn't get it at all. And they can tell the quality. The different reelers can. So they get about four hours in the morning to go around and look at all the farmers' cocoons, and then the bidding starts. So it's like a cocoon Wall Street, and the bidding is done in about 20 minutes, and the reelers go away with the cocoons uh, that they bid on. Now, in a small cottage industry, this is how silk is reeled in India, on a small cottage industry level. As you can see, the silk uh, cocoons are put in warm water, again, to soften the sarazen. It's not taken out. And you can see by his hands how gooey and gummy the sarazen is. And then the cocoons go to this little reeling station. Now, this woman, um, I reel silk every summer just for the fun of it. And I'll tell you, to find the the running ends of 10 cocoons with a toothbrush takes me an hour. And so the appreciation I have for what people do who do this by hand is absolutely immense because... The silk just doesn't start unraveling right away because there's that hammock work that they laid in their little condo first so they had something to rest their body in before they started spinning. Well, you get a toothbrush and you get a lot of that off before you find the running end of the cocoon. So with this woman, she's got three, four, five, she's got six stations there, and she's watching all of that. And this particular one, I think, was not electric. I think it was a treadle, because I don't see any electric cords, because I've seen electric, and I've also seen treadle. She's treadling to keep those reels up there going round and round, which keeps the cocoons bobbing up and down in the water as they're unraveling and going through that 
porcelain eye, right? And then wrapping around that. So not only is she treadling, she's watching those cocoons because it's very important that the denier or the diameter of the silk thread remain the same. So as soon as one of those cocoons stops bobbing up and down, she has to add a thread from another cocoon. So she's treadling, she's watching these things bobbing up and down so she can deal with one if it's not on the side. She's finding the ends of more cocoons so that when the one has run out, she can throw a thread on. And that's all they do is they just throw it on because the sarazen will uh, make it cling to uh, its partner. And this is another cottage industry situation. They're using rice hulls here because it gives a nice, low, even heat. And he's got his cocoons in a dish above that. And wait till you see this reeling situation. It's really um, uh, amazing and more primitive. We can see in this photograph over here, you can see the two thin strands of silk from one cocoon. You can barely see it, right? That's how fine it is. So um, they're running off that thing there. Then you can see the fellow in the background with a bamboo stick that is attached to a wheel that has uh, inner tube rubber on it around the wheel, which goes back to the reel, and he's pushing that back and forth, which is turning the reel, which is unraveling the silk from the cocoons as they're bobbing up and down. If you thought you appreciated silk before, I think you'll know just how much you really need to appreciate silk. Now, this cloth is from the state called Andhra Pradesh, and it's made out of cotton. But I want to show it to you because it's in much bigger form so we can understand what double ECAT is for those people who um, who don't work with textiles because this is amazing, and the family um, that does it in Gujarat State uh, is also amazing. The amazing thing is the pattern is all accomplished through dyeing. And this is called double ECAT. So the dyeing is done on the warp threads, the ones that are going to be stationary on the loom, and the weft threads, the ones that run from weft to right. So the dyeing that they've done is so precise that the red in the warp matches with the red in the weft. So you got red on red, black on black, white on white. Um, and the reason doubly cat is so special is that you can use what's called an even weave. There's as many warp threads showing in the warp direction as in the weft direction, and it gives you a softer cloth. Many countries have uh, ECAT in either the warp direction or the weft direction, and they have to have uh, the threads, let's say it's a warp ECAT, the threads have to be much closer together so that it shows, which means you're going to have not nearly as flexible a cloth. You're going to have a much stiffer cloth. So that's why this is so special. It's done in India. It's done in Japan, and it's done in Bali, and that's it because it's so so time-consuming. So this gives you a picture of how difficult it is to get white on white, red on red, black on black. And we're going to a village to see how they prepare all of this and then weave it. So there, at light, remember, everything happens out in the open, whether you're winding your warp or brushing your teeth or getting your dentures installed. 
in order to get all those colors on the same threads, on the same warp threads, first of all, they use, in India, they use different things in different countries, but uh, throughout most of India, they use inner tube, uh, old inner tube uh, rubber. They wrap their threads where they want the white to be. After they've got all the sections wound where the white is to be, then they take it to the red dye pot and they dye it in red. Then it goes back to the tires, the rubber inner tube comes out again, and they wrap all the sections that they want to remain red with inner tube, go back to the dye pot, and dye it in black. So we go from the lightest color to the darkest color every time we go to the dye pot, and we were only looking at three colors there. Wait till you see what the Salvi family does in the Patola cloth. So... Uh, what we see on the left hand here is sections of warp. It's easier to wrap a small section in order to be able to resist the dye because you have to wrap it so tight. And it gets done in sections like that. Then here we have this fellow uh, doing the dyeing. And uh, in this village, this is what they had. You, different villages have more, some have less. But this is what... Um, he has for dyeing his one little uh, pot there with his red dye. And what you're looking at in the right-hand side is when he gets to where the rubber is so that he can get a nice, crisp line between the yellow and the red, he's going like this where the rubber is. So he makes sure that the dye gets saturated right up to, right up to the, the rubber. So this is, this is ECAT. Now, this is an ECAT cloth. This is a family um, in Gujarat, the uh, Salvi family. The cloth they make is called Patola cloth. It's an ancient type of weaving and cloth. Monarchies and dignitaries from all throughout Asia and Southeast Asia have always coveted a Patola cloth. Vegetable dyed. They went through a period where they were doing some chemical dyes, but now they're all doing vegetable dyed. When I first visited the Salvi family, uh, well over 20 years ago, um, there was about 15 family members. One of the last times I visited, we were down to five, and I'm going back to India in November and December and going to visit the Salvi family again to get the rest of the story uh, one of the times when I was visiting and the kids were in their late teens and 20s and they were going off to be doctors and lawyers and architects, I asked the elders whether it made them sad. And they said, well, don't you want the best thing for you children? And I said, of course. And they said, well, you're a weaver. I can't imagine in your country weavers get paid the same as a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. And I understood, I totally understood, but it also felt really sad. Another time I went back, uh, one of the girls had come back. She was an architect. She'd left her architect business because she could see that this was uh, an amazing technique. I liken when we lose a technique like this that's so old and so ancient and so wonderful. To me, it's like losing a species of animal or a species um, of plant. It's just a... It's a, it's a real pity and a, and a tragedy. Well, they're so good. These dyers uh, and weavers are so good that on the loom here, and that's how simple their loom is, you see the first white band toward the right-hand side of the photo. Then you see red, and then you see more white. 
Well, the end of the weaving is at the red band. The next white band is just the warp that hasn't been woven yet. And you can see this compared to the red, white, and black one that we looked at, how good they are, how fine the weaving is, and how well they match everything. So after they weave about an inch, this is two brothers, after they weave about an inch, they have these sort of needle-looking things where they look at what they've done, and if one of the threads is out of alignment a little bit, they tug and they pull and they get everything all lined up. So one doesn't weave very many inches in a day as one is um, getting everything organized. So there's uh, the Salvi family on one of my visits and I'm so looking forward to visiting them again. Because what I've heard is that there's a, there's a couple of designers. Uh, in Indian uh, Fashion in India is hot, really hot. And uh, one of the designers is starting to use the patola cloth. If that's the case, then I heard that they're going to start training people other than family members in the technique, which I think would, would be a good thing. So we'll see when I go back uh, for my visit in in a month. Now we're going to visit um, wild silk, tussa silk, and uh, someone asked me about it tonight. All the silk we've been looking at creates white silk. It's the Bombex Mori. Then this beautiful piece that you're looking at here is made out of tussa silk, and the, the piece that's the tablecloth on this table is also tussa silk. And it's, it's made from a wild caterpillar. Now, man has tried to domesticate this caterpillar for years and years, and it's a feisty character. It refuses to do all of its life cycle on the inside. There's a few things it'll do on the inside, but mostly it just likes to be out in the wild, in the jungles where its trees are. Now, the natural tussa color is this honey beige, and the reason it's a honey beige is because of the food it eats. It eats the leaves of trees that have tannin in them. It's the same thing that stains um, your teacups. And these are the little babies. The rearers in the villages make these beautiful little leaf cups, and they put the eggs in, and as soon as the eggs start to hatch in the village, then they take the little cups and they hang them in the trees out in the forest. These are the rearers. So these guys go and hang out in the jungles. They make their little date palm hut uh, because the caterpillars are just out in the trees on their own. This fellow has a slingshot and some mud balls because you can imagine if you were a flock of birds and you came across uh, these caterpillars, you would think you died and went to heaven because they are so huge. The cocoons are equally as large. When you look at the cocoons in the baskets up here, you'll just go, oh, my gosh, they're like four times as big as the white ones. So these guys are out in the forest, and they're keeping the birds away and the rodents and the snakes and everything else. And not only that, when you get these caterpillars in a tree, it doesn't take very long before they denude a tree. I had no idea until the first time I traveled to India. I, it might have been the same way for Charlotte. I had no idea that India is so filled with tribal people. We would call them indigenous peoples, um, but lots of tribal people. And um, a lot of uh, their spirituality and their particular culture is involved with their textiles and what they do. And in this particular area, raising the tussa silk is a big part of their spirituality as well as um, their finances, how they get their money uh, from not only the cocoons but the cloth that they weave. 
You've been listening to part three of Reel and Weave, the Silk Spinner's Story. The lecture was recorded live at the Vancouver Museum as part of the 2007 Mewa Textile Symposium. For more information about Mewa podcasts, please visit our website at www.mewa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>